Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And for this month's AJG podcast, I'm pleased to be with Chris Cowdley, who is a clinical professor at Washington State University and the lead author of the latest ACG clinical guidelines on hereditary hemochromatosis. Chris, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So this is the latest uh, ACG guideline to be published in our journal. It's on, as I said, hereditary hemochromatosis. And, you know, we all know about hemochromatosis. It's a condition that is probably more common than many of us really appreciate. And I think that's a good place to start, Chris, is are we missing cases of hemochromatosis? And what is the prevalence of this disease? Undoubtedly, we are missing cases. Hereditary hemochromatosis, especially the HFE-associated hereditary hemochromatosis, the classical form of this disease, has a prevalence of between 1 in 200 to 1 in 500 persons for the homozygous C282Y mutation. So this would make it one of the most common genetic conditions among Caucasians of northern European descent. So that's really an impressive statistic epidemiologically, and, and we'll get to the question of whether we should be screening more regularly or, or when to screen, but let's take a step back and we'll get to that. And so, you know, hemochromatosis we know is uh, a disorder of iron overload, and, you know, we've come to realize that it's probably related to excess absorption due to a deficiency in, in hepcidin. Can you tell us more about the biomechanics of this and what hepcidin is and how it works? Yes. Excellent question. So we've thought for a long time that the primary disorder in hemochromatosis was related to a problem at the gut or in the duodenum because that's where the hyperabsorption of iron from a normal diet takes place. But we have now discovered that the liver appears to be a central site for the lack of regulation of appropriate iron absorption in the intestine. So iron absorption follows a very coordinated pattern. So inorganic iron is first reduced from 3 plus to 2 plus and goes across the intestinal absorptive brush border after a ferric reductase reduces the iron. It then enters the absorptive cell and then is transported through the cell and then transported extracellularly through a different transporter. And that transporter is ferroportin. And we have now discovered that hepcidin, which is a circulating peptide produced in the liver, is essentially a hormone, appears to bind ferroportin in the intestine and internalizes it, thus preventing the transport of iron out of the absorptive cell and into the bloodstream. So in summary, hepcidin has an inhibitory effect on iron absorption. And what happens in hemochromatosis is there appears to be a failure at the level of the hepatocyte in sensing circulating iron stores. So if you will, there is a blunted response. Under normal circumstances, in states of iron deficiency, hepcidin production is suppressed, so iron absorption is increased because of failure to block iron absorption by binding to ferroportin. And under conditions of iron excess, hepcidin production is increased which then prevents excessive iron absorption. And in HFE hemochromatosis, and in fact many of the other types of hereditary hemochromatosis with uh, some exceptions, the failure is in appropriate sensing of body iron stores 
and therefore a blunted response. So iron absorption is not turned off as quickly or as efficiently as it should be, thus resulting in continued excess absorption of iron from what is otherwise a normal diet. Well, it's a great review of a complex physiology, a very very elegant physiology, and certainly if we have any GI fellows listening, there's probably two or three potential board questions hidden in all of that information that you just provided us. So I think while we're on the topic of board-type questions, another common type of question is what is really the difference between you know primary iron overload syndromes and secondary iron overload syndromes, you know, like thalassemias and so forth, and how does that uh, appear differently in a biopsy of the liver, for example, or just physiologically in general? So that's a very astute and important question because it actually makes thinking about hemochromatosis more elegant but also more confusing because if you think about how the term hemochromatosis was defined, it was based on excess tissue injury from iron overload in multiple organs. So by that definition, any condition where you have increased iron deposition in multiple organs throughout the body that lead to iron overload could be hemochromatosis. But in fact, that's not what we mean when we refer to the term hemochromatosis. Generally, we're referring to a condition or as you refer to primary iron overload as opposed to secondary iron overload. Yes, and for the fellows who are listening, the key important differentiation between those two categories is, to my thinking, primary iron overload is a condition where there is an inappropriately high absorption of iron from a normal diet, and that is usually due to deficient production of hepcidin, whereas secondary iron overload could either be related to a compensatory hyperabsorption of iron, say, for example, from homozygous beta thalassemia, where there's huge increased absorption to compensate for the anemia and the hemolysis that takes place, or in conditions, for example, where there's iatrogenic iron overload due to multiple transfusions, uh, which might occur, for example, in patients who have received bone marrow transplantation, etc. So primary versus secondary, it's a physiologically appropriate response to a need to increase iron absorption or iatrogenic iron overload versus an inappropriately high absorption of iron from a normal diet due to a genetic condition that leads to insensitive or inappropriately low production of hepcidin. Mm -hmm. So in the uh, guidelines, there's a table that nicely lays out all the different causes of secondary iron overload, and some of the most important ones are highlighted in the text, alcohol use disorder in particular, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and viral hepatitis, in particular, uh, hepatitis C and hepatitis B. So those are all very helpful to know because those are very common conditions where we might see elevated iron indices, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's primary hereditary hemochromatosis. So this sort of gets us to the point of screening and diagnosis. So let's talk a little bit about how do you diagnose hereditary hemochromatosis. I think this has changed quite a bit, particularly since the mid to late 90s. You know, when I was in medical school, we talked about a liver biopsy, and now we've come to realize that there's a lot of probably better non-invasive ways to confirm the diagnosis. So talk to us a little bit about how we make the diagnosis of HH. Yes. 
So this is a classic example of how widespread use of a simple genetic test can dramatically affect our ability to make diagnoses. So you're absolutely right. In the 1980s, we used to measure liver iron concentration. And in fact, I published several papers when I was a fellow and early in my career in the early 90s, utilizing atomic absorption spectrophotometry or biochemical iron measurement using colorimetric assays to measure iron concentration. And then we used to adjust for the iron concentration per age and calculate something called the hepatic iron index, which may sound vaguely familiar. And the idea was we would essentially try to define the disease by the phenotype of iron overload with a certain amount of iron deposited in the liver. Well, that has been completely replaced since we had the landmark paper in Nature Genetics, which identified the HFE gene and the single mutation, C282Y mutation, as responsible for the phenotype in 85% of patients with the phenotype of hemochromatosis uh, who were Caucasians. So once you have that simple genetic test that can be done using a PCR-based assay uh, as opposed to needing whole gene sequencing, et cetera, we then have the ability now for the vast majority of patients who present with an elevated transferrin iron saturation and or an elevated ferritin to confirm the diagnosis of homozygous hereditary hemochromatosis, or at least the most common form, using genetic testing. So when the gene test first came out, given that this was a very prevalent disease, there were many active debates, and I was a keen participant in these, about whether we should do genotype-based screening and just genotype everyone or do phenotypic-based screening. And where we settled at the end of the day was for the general population, starting with serum iron studies is the right way to proceed because then you avoid the problem of identifying patients who have the genotype but are not expressing the phenotype. Right, incomplete penetrant. Non-expressing genotype or non-penetrant, yeah. So this is how we approach diagnosis of hemochromatosis now. Start with serum iron transfer and iron saturation and ferritin and then obtain an HFE gene test, which should then identify the vast majority of patients as either homozygous for the C282Y mutation or compound heterozygous for the C282Y or H63D mutation. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a beautiful biological story that's progressed uh, to, where, to where we are today. But one thing that hasn't changed really is how it presents clinically. Uh, we may have different approaches to managing patients, although that too hasn't changed a whole lot. But talk to us a little bit about the most common uh, and important manifestations of hereditary hemochromatosis. So many patients may have no symptoms whatsoever, uh, or they may have nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue, lethargy, or abdominal pain. But the objective findings that lead to end organ damage are generally related to iron deposition, excess iron deposition in the liver, the heart, the pancreas, the joints, and potentially in the pituitary gland. So the most common and the most important organ that's affected in hemochromatosis is the liver, and excess iron deposition in the liver leads to activation of fibrogenesis, and uh, hemochromatosis is one of those uh, relatively rare entities where patients can go through progressive iron deposition and development of hepatic fibrosis that then can lead to cirrhosis without much in the way of necroinflammatory changes. Uh, In the pancreas, 
iron deposition can lead to selective loss of beta cells, and the iron is selectively deposited in the islets. So these patients generally have insulin secretion deficiency as opposed to insulin resistance. And in the heart, you can get iron deposition, which can be in the subendocardium and generally may lead to a, a restrictive physiology. And generally, these patients don't have atherosclerotic heart disease, but may develop congestive heart failure. And as you point out in the guidelines, uh, cardiomyopathy is the second leading cause of mortality uh, in this patient population, although it may not be all that prevalent. Relatively small percentage of people end up having advanced heart disease, but when it occurs, it can be quite devastating. Is that right? That's correct, uh, Brennan. So now that's a little bit different with some of the more rare forms of hemochromatosis. So for example, there are other types of hemochromatosis that are hereditary that are described in the guideline. And the OMIM classification for hemochromatosis is now based on types 1 through 4. And type 2 is juvenile hemochromatosis, which may be due to either a hemojuvalin mutation or a mutation in hepcidin. And this form of hemochromatosis causes very severe and massive iron overload, and patients present with significant endocrine or cardiac complications early in life, uh, maybe in their 30s. And there does not appear to be this male-female predominance in type 2 hemochromatosis. So, so there are some forms where the cardiomyopathy can be a, a very important leading complication, but for the traditional most common type of hemochromatosis that our colleagues and gastroenterologists are likely to encounter is the HFE associated where generally cardiomyopathy occurs after the development of cirrhosis, so most patients are diagnosed before the development of cardiomyopathy. So let's talk about treatment. Uh, this is amazing that we still use phlebotomy as the primary treatment for hereditary hemochromatosis. I say amazing because it works, and you know it's something that we've had access to for like all of modern medicine. The only condition I can think of where bleeding is still the actual treatment of choice. So when should we initiate phlebotomy in patients with HH, and what are the goals of treatment? Most experts would agree that patients who have the genotype of hemochromatosis or who phenotypically express significant iron overload, the first goal is to determine whether or not they have advanced hepatic fibrosis because that changes long-term surveillance, and you're probably going to come to that in a minute. But in terms of treatment, generally our treatment guidelines are to initiate phlebotomy for patients who have an elevated serum ferritin level. So it's a little bit confusing because you may not start phlebotomy in a patient that has a ferritin that is in the normal range, but in the high end of normal or in the normal range, which may be up to 200 for a woman and up to 300 for a man. But once you initiate phlebotomy, our goal is to try to reduce the serum ferritin to around 50 or definitely less than 100. So our therapeutic goal is a serum ferritin 50 to 100. Generally, we try to keep the ferritin level a little bit lower in patients with more advanced fibrosis and maybe in patients with early disease, a ferritin goal target of less than 100 would be sufficient. So this is generally done by weekly or biweekly phlebotomy of 400 to 500 cc's of blood removed. There are some other ways of removing red cells more selectively that we describe in the guideline, and I would direct the reader to check that out. And once we initiate phlebotomy, our goal is to achieve 
that therapeutic goal. And generally what we do is we do weekly phlebotomy for 8 or 10 or 12 phlebotomies depending on how high the patient's initial ferritin is. So you're sort of an induction phase. And then once the patient has been iron depleted, they would enter what's called the maintenance phase where they may only need one or two phlebotomies every three months or a couple of times a year. What is very interesting is about 25% of patients who present with phenotypic hemochromatosis and elevated serum ferritin measuring increased total body iron stores, after completion of their initial phlebotomy, they actually don't need long-term phlebotomy. So that's still unexplained, and it appears that there may be compensatory mechanisms that lead to upregulation of hepcidin production. This is not well understood, but certainly initial phlebotomy is done weekly or biweekly, depending on the patient's tolerability. Now, the uh, guidelines have a very helpful set of recommendations for counseling patients who will undergo phlebotomy, and we don't have time to review them all, but definitely refer the listener to the guidelines to learn more about some practical tips for working with patients who are beginning or undergoing phlebotomy. Uh, One last question I have is, phlebotomy works for some but not all of the complications of uh, iron overload once they have been established. Could you review for us which aspects of iron overload can get better with phlebotomy and maybe which ones cannot get better? Right. So liver function, as defined by liver tests, usually are normal unless the patient has a very advanced disease. So they're usually not abnormal to begin with, but there are some data going back to the 80s suggesting that features of portal hypertension may actually improve with a mobilization of iron and phlebotomy. We also know that in patients that have cardiac iron overload, once the patient has developed dilated cardiomyopathy, uh, generally cardiac function does not improve dramatically. But if the diagnosis is made prior to the dilated cardiomyopathy phase, cardiac function can improve. Hepatic fibrosis can improve, definitely stabilize, and there are reports of cirrhosis even being reversed after phlebotomy. Unfortunately, the one symptom that does not seem sensitive or responsive to phlebotomy consistently is one that is a significant cause of uh, decreased quality of life and symptoms, and that is the arthropathy, especially in younger patients, and in my anecdotal experience, especially in women, there appears to be not a very good response uniformly to phlebotomy with the joint symptoms. And of course, I did not mention, as far as the complications, a pseudogout or a chondrocalcinosis is one of the symptoms and one of the complications of iron overload, and it's due to iron deposition in the joints, and particularly the knees can be affected. Uh, So that's a symptom that doesn't improve consistently, but many of the other symptoms and end-organ lesions will stabilize, if not reverse. So this all points out the importance of early diagnosis and having a low index of suspicion for screening for hemochromatosis. We talked about how common this condition is and how underdiagnosed it likely is. So for all of our listeners, next time you see elevated transaminases, you're wondering what's going on, remember this conversation. Think about screening early and often when appropriate and strongly recommend that our listeners go to the guidelines for more information. This is a terrific, very comprehensive document. And as I said a few times, 
is full of answers to many potential board questions as well. So uh, on behalf of my co-editor, Brian Lacey, I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Cowley, for being with us today for this interesting discussion. Thank you so much. 